We're in the first book of Kings, chapter 18. So please look at two verses here. First book of Kings, chapter 18. Let's start at verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. So that will be the first part of the message will be around those words there. The second part of the message will be around verse 21, which is actually earlier in the narrative, but we'll deal with it second. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. Let's start with some geography. This white screen is Palestine. Over there, where it's black, is the Mediterranean Sea. Over there, where it's black and jumbled, is the desert. Going up here, about there, is the River Jordan. It starts at the north, or for the ladies, at the top. <laughs> Excuse me, won't you? That's not politically correct. <laughs> And then it comes down and there's a little bubble, which is the Sea of Galilee. And then it comes down again and there's the Dead Sea. And, and it doesn't go any further. There's no outlet um, because the water evaporates in the Dead Sea. It doesn't flow into the sea. Now, there's the River Jordan. Now draw a line right across the middle of the map. Done that now? Right across the middle. And we're in the 9th century BC. And south of that line is the Kingdom of Judah. And the capital is Jerusalem. And north of that line is the kingdom of Israel. And the capital is Samaria. And in Samaria is the worst king that they've ever had. This is history. He's king because he's, he's, he's the worst king because he's weak. He's married. Now, that's not a sign of weakness. But he's married Jezebel. Up in the top corner on that side is Tyre and Sidon. Jezebel comes from Tyre and Sidon. She's not a nice person. And she has imposed upon the whole northern kingdom, on the whole kingdom of Israel, she's imposed Baalism. You won't like Baalism. Even if you followed Baal, you probably didn't like Baalism. Baalism murdered children. Some of you boys wouldn't have a chance, especially if you're the oldest son. You're let off, you two. You've had it. Because often the son was offered up as a sacrifice. 
Baalism was thoroughly immoral. And all over the land are little lumps of ground with a pole in, and things go on there, which I'm not going to talk about, and you wouldn't really want to know about, except to say that the nation was a filthy-minded, immoral, disgusting, depraved, cruel nation because of the influence of Jezebel and the weakness of Ahab. The place was saturated with paganism of the very worst sort, and the prophets of God were killed, except for a hundred who had been secretly smuggled away and Elijah. Elijah is moved to confront the evil of the hour. And this is where the message immediately becomes appropriate to us because there is evil all around us, exceptional evil, worst forms of evil. And you and I, as Christian believers, if you are one this evening, part of our calling, it's not our total calling, but part of our calling is to confront the evil of the hour. And we can learn a lot from Elijah. Now, Elijah was a man, says the Bible. He had a specific weight, color of hair, color of eyes, height, build. Um, from the part of the land where he came from, most of the people were rather thin but extremely strong. And maybe he was like that, I don't know. But he's a Tishbite. He comes from a, a remote village way out in the, the far back, which probably the king had never even heard of uh, over there. And he's come to know the Lord. I don't know how. I don't know when. But he's got a great name. Eli Yah. My, my God is Jehovah. My God is the Lord. <laughs> That's a great name, isn't it? And it, it sums him up. And he is moved to confront the king with this awful evil. Elijah's a man who knows his Bible. He's read the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, God promises that if his people resort to other gods, he will stop it raining and they will suffer severe drought. Elijah takes hold of that promise and he prays it and then he goes to the king, not caring what might happen to him, and says, there will be no rain in the country anymore except at my word. I think the king must have been stunned because he didn't murder Elijah, which probably would have been his normal response. And Elijah leaves the palace. He's hidden for a while by the brook Kidron. And then he's hidden for a while in Jezebel's country. And then three and a half years nearly later, he's told to go back and speak again to Ahab. Ahab. Ahab's been looking for him all this time. The flocks are dying, the horses are dying, the livestock's dying, the fig trees aren't producing, the corn isn't growing, the people are dying, there are corpses in the streets, people are dying of thirst and hunger, the whole nation is in tragedy, and 
Elijah meets Ahab. Is that you, you troubler of Israel, says the king. And Elijah says, it's not me who troubled Israel. It's you and your fathers because you've been worshipping the Baal. This is what you've got to do, says the peasant to the king. <laughs> you've got to gather all the false prophets together and come and meet me on Mount Carmel. Where, where did Elijah get that idea from? Of a great confrontation between him, the prophet of God, and the 850 professional prophets, 400 of whom were paid out of Jezebel's own personal purse. Where did, where did he get the idea of that enormous confrontation? Um, well, verse 36 of our chapter, I think, makes that perfectly clear. Chapter 18, verse 36, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. God, all of a sudden, possibly, or little by little, has revealed to his faithful servant there's got to be this showdown between truth and error. I'm not going to preach on the showdown. That's for another time for another person. Why not go home and read it out loud? Read it out loud with their children. Rejoice over it. Cry over it. It's terrific. I want to know if Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he's going out to confront evil, what actually was going on inside him at that time? Here in the page of history is a man of God. What's going on inside the inner heart of a man of God? That's what I want to know. That's where the focus of our message will be. I'm not a prophet and none of us are. From that point of view, Elijah is unique. Well, not unique, there are other prophets, but we don't fit. But when it, I remember that he's a man, and actually I find out later in my Bible, a very vulnerable man, a very emotional man, a very fragile man. When I find out that he's a man with a nature like mine, with a nature like yours, and he's going out to confront evil because certain things are in his soul, I think that I want to know what that was and what was going on inside him, because part of my calling and part of yours as a Christian is to confront evil. So we will find, like preachers always find, that three things were going on in the soul of this man of God. Please come to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 36. It came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord 
God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He could have called him Jacob, but he called him Israel because the nation was named after him. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. All across the nation of Israel, hello, we've got a few inhabitants, didn't realize that. All across the nation of Israel are broken altars. God used to be worshipped there, but he isn't now. And he's stirred. His concern is that God should be recognized for who he is. It's about God. Not about Elijah. He's concerned that God should be recognized for who he is. All across that land there have been prophets and apart from 100 who've been secreted away, they're dead. And he's moved by it. The voice of God is silenced in the land. And he's concerned that God should be recognized for who he is. And in this promised land, God promised it for his people to enjoy and worship him in there and enjoy him there. In this promised land, there is a saturation of idolatry. And he's moved. And nobody talks anymore about Abraham, even though they've got his blood in their veins. And nobody talks anymore about Isaac, even though they're descended from him. And nobody talks anymore about Israel, Jacob, even though their nation is named after him. And he's stirred. They are behaving as if the God of their fathers didn't exist. When you walk past a closed chapel where the gospel was preached, where Christian people spent life savings to put the place up and sacrifice through generations sometimes to make sure that a gospel minister was there to proclaim the gospel. When you see a closed place of worship where the gospel has been preached, I don't care if all the others close, by the way, but if you see one where the gospel was preached closed, doesn't it do anything to you? Do you ever feel stirred by that? Ministers of the gospel, who are not a special elite or class, 
but who do nonetheless preach the gospel and exalt Jesus Christ were once honoured and respected. But now they're cheap targets in soaps on the telly and despised, ignored, or completely unknown. Does that do anything to you? Not because we want ministers to be respected. I remember one very respected minister, I overheard his conversation years ago, saying that he'd shown some disapproval to a certain person in his town and it, that had put his business out of business. We don't want that. We're not asking for those days to return. But when you think that there are men appointed by Christ to preach his word and they are ignored, unknown, or despised, does that do anything to you? And when you walk around this United Kingdom, but we'll just talk about England for today, as where that's where we happen to be, do you know anything of its history? And when you are confronted with fellow citizens, friends, family members, neighbours, colleagues, who know nothing almost of the glorious history which God has given to this favoured nation, does it do anything to you? I thought I'd give my, you know they have these quiz programs where you can see what you, how many this and that you can come up with in a minute. Well, I, I gave myself a couple of minutes, but I thought, I wonder what names, great, really great names I could think of in a couple of minutes just associated with England. Uh, here was my list. John Wycliffe. Have you heard of him? Have you? Yeah. I shall not die but live and denounce the wicked works of the friars. That was a quote from him. He translated the Bible and sent the lollards into every part of the country lolling. And lolling, by the way, wasn't lying around doing nothing. Lolling was speaking quietly scripture in someone's ear. The second person on my list was the greatest Englishman who's ever lived. Who was that? Pardon? It was William Tyndale. Thank you once more, Eamon, for being in the service. <laughs> it was William Tyndale. He gave us the New Testament and the large lump of the Old Testament in plain, straightforward, easily understandable English. His work led to the authorised version which gave us our language and influenced all our literature. And some of you have never heard of him. I think you should be beaten publicly at the door, to be honest. <laughs> William Tyndale, there's never been a greater man, I believe, who spilt his blood that we might have the Bible in English. He was on my list. 
Hugo Latimer is on my list. Nicholas Ridley. Have you heard of them? Where were they burnt? And why? John Bunyan's on my list. I'm glad to, glad to know that there are a few people today who still know about John Bunyan and the Pilgrim's Progress and the wonderful book that he wrote which has gone into so many languages all over the world. John Owen, and you're going to tell me in a minute, yeah, you left out so-and-so. Yes, but I just gave myself a couple of minutes. John Owen is on my list. That's how I've got these in initials now. George Whitfield, heard of him? Josh, John Wesley? William Carey? Where's the women someone's going to say in a minute? David Livingstone? Yep. Uh, what, w, oh, yeah, Wilfred Grenfell. Good. He took the gospel to the Eskimos. Lived in Park Gate. Ever been there? Did you know that as a result of someone, a boy living in Park Gate, that hundreds, thousands of people in the Eskimo world came to Christ? Did you know that? Should do. William Wilberforce. He's there. Lord Shaftesbury. Florence Nightingale. C.H. Spurgeon. Mary Slessor. Gladys Aylwood, and that's my first list. I drew up one for Wales while I was at it, but we won't go into that now. <laughs> when you talk to the average person and you talk about these men and women of God who spoke of Christ, reflected Christ, preached his ways and influenced the whole life of the nation and you find that they haven't the faintest clue who you're talking about, but they know who scored how many runs in such and such a test match, who scored in the whichever World Cup it was in the 44th minute. Don't you think that there's something in you that should be stirred? And the stirring should be not for English nationalism, or for history, but for God to be recognized for who he is. That was point one. Point two, verse 36, chapter 18, verse 36. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. He sees himself as God's servant. Which category of Christian are you in? Are you a Christian who says, I have a life, and with my life, I'd better do something for the Lord? Then rub that thought out. Think like this. Elijah did. God is. 
And the God who is, is the God of the scriptures. And he has an eternal plan. He's working out a purpose for his own glory, which will certainly be fulfilled. I am his creature, and because I've come to Christ, I am his child. What is his will for me in his purpose? And it's a completely different sort of mindset. With one, you start with me and work to God. That's never, ever, ever right. And with the other, you start with God. And you work to me. And that is always, always right. Servants don't have schemes of their own. They don't say, excuse me, master, but I think you should do this, this and this, and you should do it this way and that way. And have you ever thought about that? And the master would say, and who do you think you are, slave? We're not doing something for God. God has an eternal purpose, and somewhere along the line we fit into it. He wants to do something with me, by me, through me. And in doing so, he will do something for me. That's true. But the great need of the hour is to find out what he once, I know students who've decided on their course of study and never once asked, Lord, what do you want me to do? I know schoolboys and schoolgirls who are coming up to their school leaving time and they've never prayed yet, Lord, what do you want me to do? I know husbands and wives who have never prayed together, Lord, what do you want us to do? And I know folk who've come up to retirement and said, here I am, Lord, I'm your servant, but I'm no longer employed by the state, <laughs> even though they give me a nice pension. What do you want me to do? Elijah knew that his raison d'etre, you know what that is in English, don't you? It's raison d'etre. <laughs> Elijah knew that his reason for existence the very reason he was put on the planet was to do the Lord's will. And it's now the Lord's will that the nation should be gathered and the challenge should be given. Ha! You put a bull on an altar and pray for fire to come down because you're not to put any fire under the altar. And I'll put a bull on the altar and I'll pray for fire to come down. And whichever God sends the fire, he is God. Elijah knew it was the Lord's will there should be such a confrontation. And he knew that God is very clever. <laughs> the, the Baalites couldn't refuse that offer because after all, didn't they believe that amongst his other functions, Baal was the sun god? And Elijah knew that Baal's altar would be smokeless. And he knew that the Lord would answer by fire because he still listens to prayer and the messengers were sent out all over the land I expect it took a couple of weeks before the people started climbing up that steep mountain up to Carmel for the showdown and they're beginning to take their places where they can get a good view and we read the astonishing thing in verse 21 here it is Elijah came to all the people 
What's he been doing? They've all come to Carmel, <laughs> and there's no Elijah. Then he comes. What do you think he's been doing? Well, a little later in the chapter, he's praying for rain. He has to pray instantly, fervently, importunately, with perseverance for the rain to come. Seven times he has to send his servants to look for the cloud. That's what he has to do for rain to come. I have a theory. Can't prove it, but I'm sure it's right. That he's been hiding away somewhere on Mount Carmel and he's been praying that when the showdown comes, God will indeed answer by fire because there's only one thing that must be done and that is the Lord's will. A godly heart burns for God to be recognized for who he is and a godly heart prays constantly what Paul prayed as his first prayer. Lord, what will you have me to do? Thirdly, verse 21, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. The great confrontation now starts. Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The godly heart knows that there are occasions in life where you've got to go one way or the other way but you can't go both ways and you can't stand in the middle. It's not always like that. Can you be tired and happy? Yeah, that's not contradiction, is it? Can you say to your first child, who's the only child, I love you with the whole of my heart? And then a second child comes along and you can say, can you say to the second child, I love you with the whole of my heart. Can you? And then a third child comes along and you say, I love you with the whole of my heart. And you do. <laughs> There's no contradiction there. But ladies and gentlemen, young people, if you're going up, you're not going down. If you're going left, you're not going right. If you're going east, you're not going west. If you're black, you're not white. If you're white, you're not black. If you're lost, you're not saved. If you're saved, you're not lost. And there are times in the Christian life where you just have to face the fact that you can't please everybody there are two alternatives, using posh language, which are mutually exclusive. If you go that way, you can't go that way. And if you go that way, you can't go that way. And every godly heart can see that. Elijah could see it. So he said it. If the Lord is God, if he is, 
follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Today, of course, some hand-rubbing member of the cabinet or the opposition will come along and say, why can't you have both worlds? But the godly heart knows that there's occasion after occasion after occasion where you can't have both. If you decide to remain a non-Christian, you're not a Christian. If you decide to become a Christian, you're not a non-Christian. If you're going to be a Christian, you have to live a Christian life. And if you're a non-Christian, then don't be a hypocrite. Live a non-Christian life. But you can't do both. If God exists, atheism is nonsense. But if atheism is true, what on earth are we doing here? You can't have both. If God exists, you better live as he wants you to. If God doesn't exist, live as you please. Straightforward, isn't it? If Christ is the only way to heaven, you better come to Christ. But if Christ isn't the only way to heaven, then forget Christianity. Forget it completely. It's nonsense. If Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday, by the way, he did. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead on a Sunday, Sunday is forever different from the other days of the week, isn't it? The great, extraordinary, unrepeatable work of resurrection took place. Can you imagine that? He was dead and he came back to life and he was on a Sunday. You can never, ever, 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 ever treat Sunday then ah, like any other day. Because it isn't. But if he didn't rise from the dead, every day is the same. Isn't it? If the Bible is God's book, follow it. If the Bible isn't God's book, bin it. If the world exists because God created it, worship him. If the world just came into being as an accident of time plus chance, then accept the fact that life is meaningless. You're just a random collection of molecules who've been gathered together over millions of years and there's more meaning in that chair than there is in you because at least that chair's been made with a reason. And by the way, 
If you're just a random collection of molecules and you really believe that about people, do you believe that? I hope you don't, but if you do, then at least be consistent. When your neighbour's little girl is killed in a car accident, go around and say to the parents, stop crying, love. Her, all their molecules are still intact, they've just been assembled differently. And if you can't look bereaved parents in the eyes and say that, it's because you don't really believe it, do you? Inside you, actually, you know that God created the world and you know you're not a random collection of molecules, you know that God exists. The problem is then, not that you don't believe it, the problem is that you do believe it and you're suppressing what you believe. If marriage is a creation and ordinance of God by which he decrees that there may only be sexual expression between one man and one woman within a covenant bond until death breaks the bond, then honour marriage and don't dare call anything else by that name. But if marriage is not a divine institution, any sexual expression with any body or anything of any age is obviously okay. Because who's to decide? If life begins at conception, if the child has a unique chromosomatic structure from the moment of conception, it is a child. And if life does not begin at conception, when does it begin? And who decides? And if they decide that's a human life from 12 weeks, they can also decide that's not a human life at 75 years. Can't they? I think the most wicked thing I've ever seen in my life was when the result of the recent Irish referendum was announced. And within minutes, within minutes, there was dancing in the street and the sound of champagne bottles. Because men and women were going to be given license by their government to kill unborn boys and girls before they were born. If the church is a divine institution, then it should be run as God has ordained. Christ as the head, ruling his church through his word by elders with congregational consent. 
But if the church is not a divine institution, it's of no more importance than the golf club, the snooker club, or the Xbox, is it? That's why I simply cannot understand, and Scripture is completely baffled by those of you who aren't church members and yet profess to be Christians. If heaven and hell are realities, then face the fact you will be in one or the other. But if heaven and hell are not realities, when you die, you will rot. And the godly heart is burning with concern for the glory of God. Filled with the awareness that God has a plan. It includes me. That's why he created me. And my life's calling is to do his will. But I can't go through life without decision for the truth. That's at least what I learned from Elijah. Let us pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that the things which were written aforetime, as your word says, the things which were written years ago were written for our instruction. That we, through the, the comfort of the Holy Scriptures and their teaching, might have hope. We thank you that the issues are plain. We've come to confess our sin often, we, often, often. We've been more concerned with our own reputation than your glory. Often we've been thinking about living our own lives rather than doing your will. And often we've deliberately, deliberately stood back from deciding on issues where it has to be one or the other. There's so much sin left in us, Lord. We're thankful for our Savior, for his perfect life, and the righteousness which is put to the account of every believer. We're thankful for the death of our Savior, that all the sanctions and punishments, all the deprivations that should come to us, went to him and we are delivered and freed from them completely and forever. But we ask you that you'll help us to take to heart these great things that we've learned this evening and to be those unashamed, Christ-reflecting, kind, determined, uncompromising, heavenly-minded, compassionate men and women and young people that you want us to be. 
Give us, O oh Lord, we pray, that resolution. And to say, this God is our God. He will be our guide, even unto death. We pray in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.